I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Nora Young. This is Spark. Tell me, what does it mean to be human in this particular technological moment? It can seem like conventional measures of what's true, permanent, and, well, human are up for grabs in the face of rapidly advancing tech. And if there's no special spark that truly separates us from other animals or our technological creations, does it matter? That's what we'll try to answer in our 10-part series, Being Human Now. This time, belonging. Belonging is a quicksilver emotion. It's hard to define, but you know it when you feel it. The sense that things are easy and safe. The way your body relaxes when you're with good friends. Warmth. Trust. And you sure know it when you don't feel like you belong. The title of my book is Belonging, the Science of Creating Connection and Bridging Divides. My name is Jeffrey Cohen. I'm a professor of psychology and education at Stanford University. We wanted to talk to Jeffrey because in spite of, or because of, all our digital communications tech, that feeling of belonging seems to be in short supply these days. People seem atomized, lonely, or the need to belong drives us down polarizing wormholes. So why is belonging so important to us anyway? Human beings are a highly social species, and we've evolved to be that way, in part because if you think about it, humans are highly vulnerable outside there in the wild, wild wilderness to predation and wounding and infection. We, in short, just can't go alone. We need other people to not only survive, but thrive. And so evolutionarily built into our genes is a need to belong, a need to be with others. So much so that uh, when we experience prolonged bouts of loneliness, our bodies respond in a really negative way, you know, activating the genes responsible for bodily inflammation, putting us into a fight or flight response that can be very damaging in the long term. Mm -hmm. So I would say as a social species, we really do need each other. To, to, to survive, that need to belong and to connect is wired into us. Yeah. So what does belonging look like in different facets of our life, like in school and work and social life? Yeah. Well, belonging is always situated in a group. We feel it towards a group. It is a an experience and an ongoing process, of course, is never quite done, that culminates in a sense that we are accepted for who we are, warts and all. It is the sense that we matter to the group and the group matters to us. So when we have that experience of belonging, we feel like we're part of a larger whole and the whole is kind of part of us too. Yeah, you've noted that our feeling of belonging is situational. I think you have this phrase, it's a state, not a trait, which is an interesting way of putting it. Yeah, it's a state, not a trait. And it's sort of repeatedly recreated. You go into school, go into work every day. And if you don't 
like your colleagues or if you think your colleagues don't like you, it's, it's a sort of lived reality day in, day out. And one important thing to say is that many groups uh, historically marginalized in any society, stigmatized or who have experienced long bouts of discrimination, uh, those groups are chronically often feeling that state of being on the outside in school and at work. Uh, and that includes, you know, low income individuals, uh, students of color, people who feel stereotyped based off of some religion, religion or uh, disability status. Uh, for them, that feeling of being excluded is a daily experience. And, and as we know, that that can be very weathering and take a, mm -hmm. take a bodily toll and a motivational toll and, and so, many, uh, so many other things. So that's why belonging has a kind of political, social political dimension. Yeah. You know, we want a society where all feel they belong. And uh, to achieve that is really a, a difficult project, as we know. Mm-hmm. We've heard for some time that there's an epidemic of loneliness, but you've described the period we're living in as a crisis of belonging. Could you explain what makes you say that? Well, we borrowed that term from the presidential hopeful Pete Buttigieg, who used it to describe the state that we're in right now. Called a, He said it was a crisis of belonging. And I think it's just referring to the fact that we live in a society that is uh, where, where people are increasingly isolated increasingly mistrustful of one another, uh, and increasingly lonely. Yeah. Uh, there's a crisis, an epidemic of loneliness with roughly 25%. That's one in four uh, North Americans suffering from chronic loneliness. And that's really bad because the experience of loneliness is as toxic for you as roughly smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. So that's, that's one indicator. Among teenagers, social anxiety and a sense of not belonging in, at school has risen worldwide over the past 20 years. Uh, teens, for example, spend 40 fewer hours in face-to-face -face interactions with their friends each month than they did just 15 years ago. Uh, and we know that we're kind of increasingly mistrustful of each other. Social trust, at least in America, is down from roughly 60% of people generally trusting other citizens in their country, other people in their country, to today, I think it's roughly 30% uh, over the past 50 years. And we're also increasingly polarized. We look upon people with uh, in a gaze of suspicion, even paranoia. Yeah. Can we talk about that? I mean, this need for belonging doesn't necessarily lead people to kind of meaningful or even healthy relationships and communities. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? As human beings, we need some port on the shore. We need, let's call it a secure base, a place of belonging. It could be at the home, at our home, could be at school, could be at work, could be in our community. And then what happens when that need for connection and belonging and dignity is repeatedly denied, when that need to belong is defeated, then people become vulnerable to groups, sometimes extremists, even terrorists, that, that offer a sense of belonging, uh, but pretty much in exchange for your soul. A lot of research, uh, this is by Ari Kruglansky, and many others, actually Christian Piccolini, who is a, a neo-Nazi who's created an organization to bring extremists back. Uh, he said this in an interview. He said, the one thing that former extremists and terrorists will tell you is that they initially joined the group, not because they subscribed to its racist or hateful ideology, but because it offered them a sense of belonging. Hmm. And work by Kruglansky and others finds that this is true. Like it is, it is the kind of sense of being lost at sea or 
maybe you're not lost at sea, you feel like your larger group is lost at sea and does not have a home in the world. That's what creates this impetus to join these groups, by and large, for a lot of people. Nora Young, and today on Spark, we're talking about belonging as part of our occasional series, Being Human Now. Right now, my guest is Jeffrey Cohen, author of Belonging, The Science of Creating Connection and Bridging Divides. We heard that not feeling included can drive some people towards fringe or extremist movements. And that has a connection to the related social phenomenon that we see so much of in North America, polarization. We are living in an atomized, lonely society, and one way that people can get belonging is by clinging to their political groups. You know, these institutional sources of belonging like work and church and community have dwindled. And now we unfortunately get our connection through these sort of cheap calories of online connection. And so as a result, I think we've gotten some degree of belonging from political groups. They're, they're kind of like our national sports team. And by identifying with them, we can feel good about ourselves. And so just to give one example, in some research that uh, Kevin Binning and uh, colleagues conducted, they found that if you give people some alternative source of meaning, just remind them of their friends or their family, they're less likely to conform to their political groups if it's uh, unreasonable to do so. They base Mm. their political views more on kind of hard economic data, just rather than on what their political party happens to think. And I think that really tells us that the emotional satisfaction of conforming to our groups is is often what drives us to embrace their views. Not always, not always. I mean, you can learn a lot. Our groups can be sources of enrichment and awareness. But uh, we do have to be careful that they can also be sources of, of stasis and, and cause us to reject ideas, policies that might otherwise be useful to at least consider. Yeah. I just want to pick up on something you said there. You talked about social media being cheap calories. (laughs) How have social media and our digital technology altered our ideas of belonging? People disagree on this, but I think social media has been devastating, has been devastating to our connections with one another. I mean, not to say that doesn't have huge benefits. I mean, I learn a lot from social media. There's good information up there. You can join groups that you might not otherwise learn about. But by and large, I think the evidence really does suggest that It has harmed us psychologically, especially, especially teenagers. There's, as you know, been a huge increase in teen mental illness, especially anxiety and depression over the past 15 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the suicide rate among children ages 10 to 13 has quadrupled in the past, past 10 years. Life satisfaction among teenagers is way down. And one culprit Among many, there are a few, does seem to be social media. It is, uh, for two reasons at least, it's it's creating a sort of performative state in which people constantly feel like they're making social comparisons with people who are doing all these great things, enjoying life in ways that I'm not, and that, that sense of social comparison, the threat that comes from that, and also just the sense of the externalization of self-worth, feeling like you're kind of constantly gaining approval from the outside world, it, it, it kind of stunts our inner growth and ability to find inner validation. So 
That's that's one reason. And another reason is just the social reign of terror. People are very scared of being humiliated and pilloried online. And that is cyberbullying is real. I have kids. I, I know it's real. And um, and then third, also, I think people prefer these sort of cheap calories of social connection online than the, the real filling calories of face to face interaction, doing meaningful social activities together, like joining volunteer groups, civic associations, sports clubs, social media is kind of displace that. And it's so immediately hedonistically gratifying that people, you know, they're kind of gobbling up. It's like gobbling up candy, but you're kind of satisfying the need, but it's not lasting you very long. And so you return for more. And uh, that's really tragic because the true basis of meaningful connections comes from face-to-face interactions, by and large, by and large, but doing things in common purpose together. Mm. Uh, and I think that the, the more fulfilling calories of connection are one of the things that's missing in our societies and one of the things that contributes to this crisis of belonging. But can social media play that connecting role, though? For example, I mean, if I'm in a situation where I am Maybe I don't have that sense of belonging in my immediate community. Maybe I'm uh, a queer kid and I don't have that support around me. Can't it play that kind of role of establishing connections, at least in some cases? Absolutely. Absolutely. I I don't really think that there's any recipes in social life. It's not like doing one thing will inevitably lead to bad consequences. In this case, I'm just saying this is one of the risks. And it's a sufficient enough risk among kids who don't quite know how to self-regulate or discipline their usage that it on average is a big concern for teens. But I fully agree that uh, there is a sense that you can get online of, you know, there's someone out there like me dealing with problems just like me. Yeah. Can we talk a bit about phones in all this? Like, what does the evidence show us about how our use of our phones and our tendency to always have our phone in front of us, even when there's somebody sitting across from us, oh, yeah. what that does to us in terms of our the quality of our in-person interactions, our feelings of belonging and so forth? It's bad for it. I mean, of course, you're sitting alone, you don't have much to do, and it's a way to connect. But actually, there's some great research out of Elizabeth Dunn's lab demonstrating that when people put their phone away, they enjoy conversations more. So there's something about using phones which saps the joy out of these social encounters. And it seems to be at least two things. One is that people are just sort of diverted from the situation. They're distracted. So um, they're not giving it its full attention. Yeah. And that's really important because attention is the fertilizer of connection. I love that. It is really what brings people together and feeling like you're being seen and attended to in a deep way. That That is a true deep connection. And so cell phones divert from the ability to attend and tend to others. And that's really a a toxic thing. Hmm. Social life is so much more rewarding if you're paying attention. And then the second reason is that people just miss out when they have their phones out on all the emotional undercurrents of the interaction, the smiles, the nods, the bits of eye contact that are so important to feeling seen. And, and that happens if you're just on the phone too much. And, you know, because of COVID, because of the popularity of phones now, cell phones, uh, I think we're becoming less skilled, especially the youth in the art of just having face-to-face conversations where you're, you're truly there and present. Mm-hmm. Jeff, we've been talking mostly about uh, the feeling of being excluded, but what can you tell me about the motivations for why we tend to exclude other people? Oh, well, I think that... One of the ways that we feel belonging is by 
putting other people down. Hmm. The way that we judge other people is often less a reflection of them and more a reflection of our own psychological needs. And so there's a lot of great experimental research just making this point where our social judgments are often our veiled attempts to raise our self-esteem and belonging. We're like little elitists in our day-to-day interactions, kind of creating these like little cliques and groups wherever we can to put others down to make ourselves feel better. I'm not saying we all do that, but I am saying that we, you know, we, it's something for all of us to be on the lookout for. Yeah. In in your book, Belonging, you talk about how stereotypes are, and this is a quote, one of the most ingrained and damaging contaminants in human thinking. So what are some of the consequences on of stereotypes on finding community and, and finding that sense of belonging? Well, if our goal is to see each other in one another's full individuality and humanity, stereotypes are the big hurdle to doing that. And one thing about stereotypes is very interesting is that most of them are negative, which tells us something, that there are often ways of evaluating negatively some individual or group. And that's often done in order to create a sort of in-group, out-group. Like my group is the one that belongs and has integrity, and that group does not. And so this us-them mentality that's often built on stereotypes helps us to kind of create a kind of fiction or a narrative of our group and ourselves that, that we belong. So I, I think stereotypes are cognitive filters that, that fog up our ability to fully see the other person. And that ability for stereotypes, not only to cloud our judgment, but to affect our behavior can create a self-fulfilling prophecy that, that really undercuts the humanity of a, of a whole group in systemic ways that just add up over the multitude of interactions that we have with people throughout the day. Jeffrey Cohen is the author of Belonging, the Science of Creating Connection and Bridging Divides. We'll hear more from him later in the show. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nora Young, and this time on Spark, another in our occasional series, Being Human Now. That's where we look at facets of human existence that we once took to be distinctly ours and how they're changing in today's technological moment. This time, belonging. Earlier, we heard Jeffrey Cohen refer to the cheap calories we get from social media. And while overall he feels social media has been bad for us, he also notes that there are some good things that come out of it, too. And it's true. I've met some wonderful people through social media. It can be a great way to meet like-minded individuals, a sort of lightweight feeling of belonging and care. But sometimes, sometimes it can feel like being back in junior high. The bullying, the rush to judgment, and of course, the currency of likes and followers that can turn posting a photo of your cat into a popularity contest. So why does something that's supposed to be social sometimes feel so exclusionary? Hi, my name is Christiane Büttner. I'm a PhD candidate in social psychology at the University of Basel in Switzerland. Christiana researches the psychological effects of social media ostracism, the experience of being excluded and ignored by others. 
and why it's so hurtful to us. As Jeffrey Cohen observed, there's an evolutionary basis for why we look for social acceptance. Humans wouldn't have survived very well as solitary beings. Christiana says that has echoes in how we feel about exclusion today. And that's why people develop this like detection system that rings an alarm whenever you're excluded. And this detection system is very overly sensitive. Like it even rings an alarm if you're not necessarily excluded or it's unclear because a false positive would be less bad than a false negative. As we've added new tools of human interaction, the digital ones that let us broadcast what we do, who we see, and where we go, fears of exclusion have followed us online. So one phenomena that we investigated is how social media opens new possibilities to feel excluded. And these are experiences that were not around before social media, that kind of transcend from real life, like taking a picture together, to then social media contexts where that picture represents you, and then your profile name represents your identity, um, the, what you share with the world. And then if you're not tagged in that picture, that threatens your psychological needs of like belonging and also having control over your social environment and so on. In the pre-social media era, you may not have known that there was a party happening that you didn't get invited to. But now, because people post so much, we experience the sting of rejection. Social media really opens up a window into everything that we miss every day. Like you could go on social media right now and see what all of your friends did on the weekend and like all of the rewarding social interactions that you missed, that you were not a part of. And especially if you think you should have been invited to this, then it's especially hurtful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So one of the phenomena you've been researching that's unique to the digital era is a pet peeve of mine, fubbing. Could you please explain what fubbing is and some of the consequences of it? Yes, fubbing is a uh, made up word of uh, phone and snubbing. And it's when people get together in real life, quote unquote, but spend time on their phone and ignore their conversation partners for using the phone instead. It's incredibly common. I would speculate to say that this is the most common exclusion experience that people have in like everyday life. It's very hurtful. It disconnects people from each other. It drives down relationship satisfaction in romantic couples. It can lead to jealousy. And also between parents and kids, it, it's in- extremely hurtful. There's one very smart study where parents went to the museum with their kid and they were either instructed to not use their phone at all or to like just use a f- use the phone. And then afterwards they were asked like, how much did you enjoy it? If parents used their phone, both them and their kid enjoyed the museum less. Huh. So why is it that that experience of fubbing is so particularly hurtful, like more hurtful than just a regular social media ostracism experience? I'm not sure if it's more hurtful. It's I would speculate it's more common, but it does remove people from each other. It creates this disconnect where you're meeting someone for lunch and talking to them, and then they just go on to do something completely else. Most of the time, you don't see what people do on their phone, so it could be anything, and you're really being replaced for the phone. And then normally when I talk about this, then people go like, yeah, but in the ancient times, like my grandpa used to always read his newspaper during breakfast. That's also ignoring and that was also hurtful. But there seems to be something particular. So this was examined in experimental studies. Is it the same when people just look at a newspaper? But the phone is more harmful. So people feel more disconnected when someone is staring at a phone instead of engaging in conversation 
than when the person is looking at a newspaper. Huh, interesting. I mean, we've all been on the receiving end of this behavior, you know, someone pulling out their phone while you're having a meal together, or increasingly, they're talking into their watch to answer somebody <laughs> who's not there, right? Um, and sometimes they excuse themselves, sometimes they may not even realize it's it's an issue, but it's not a good feeling. and It's one we've all experienced. So why does it keep happening? So people consistently underestimate their ability to multitask. They think it's it's not that bad. I still pay attention. I still hear you. Like I'm still physically there. So I'm not really ignoring you because I'm, I'm still in the room. They also think that their partners would not be as harmed as they in fact are in terms of conversation quality and relationship satisfaction. So that's one thing we just underestimate how harmful this is to others. And then what we find in our studies is that also people who think that this is an okay thing to do, do it more, not only themselves, but they are also fubbed more. So it's really also this oh. contagious component <laughs> of like someone pulls out a phone, another phone will follow. And people who think it's no issue will also experience that more and be hurt by it. Yeah. Yeah. So they're they're hurt by it, but then they still go on to do it more yeah. to other people. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So and I know as as we discussed, you've also specifically looked at not being tagged as a, a novel form of ostracism in social media. Could you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah. So not being tagged is a unique social media thing. It's not an experience that you would have in the real world. Surprisingly, it does hurt people. They feel excluded by it. Their psychological needs go down and they need a moment to recover from this. Even more hurtful to people is when they are cut off from photos that are posted. And we think like one, cropped out. Yes. Um, and we think this might be because like not being tagged, you could still think, oh, that person just forgot me. Or maybe we don't even follow each other. It's not that bad. But being cropped out is super intentional and, and people really feel that. Yeah. Who's most susceptible to these feelings of exclusion? Like are some of us just more sensitive to certain interactions or perceived rebuffs in online spaces? Absolutely. In our research, we find that people who have a very high need to belong are especially affected by this. They take it more serious. They are more hurt by not being tagged or being cropped off. And this makes sense because that's like a built-in parameter, like how important are social interactions to you? And people who place very high importance on having social relationships then are more hurt by being cut off from others. Is there an age component to this? I mean, it just seems to me that, for, for instance, when we're teenagers, that feeling of belonging and needing the social circle around you is super important. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's also what we see in other research is that ostracism experiences, if you look at ostracism over the lifespan, is especially prevalent for young people. And then as you know, age progresses, that goes down a bit. And this is explained by how much importance we place on peer relationships. So when you're young, it's very important. Like you're 16, the most important thing is who likes you and who doesn't. When you're 30, it might not be as important anymore than maybe family or your career plays a bigger role. So based on that, young people are also especially affected by ostracism experiences. And this is problematic because social media consists of mainly young people, right? So if they are especially affected by ostracism and then additionally happen to be in those contexts where ostracism is increasingly prevalent, then we have a problem. Mm-hmm. So can you talk to me a bit more about what the effects are of being excluded and ignored on us? 
the immediate effects are very consistent across people. So it threatens psychological needs such as needs to belong, for control, self-esteem, and also the need to be like meaningful to other people. And then in the second phase, people try to make sense of the experience. They find attribution, so why that does happen. They try to behave in ways that help them to cope. And over time, if people experience exclusion over and over again, we say that they like resignate. They are unable to cope with the experience anymore, especially if they don't find connection to social groups again. And this stage has been associated with developing clinically diagnosed depression, suicidality, and even violence, such as in school shootings. So there's case studies where people looked at perpetrators of school sh shootings and found that 90% of them had a history of ostracism, bullying, or rejection prior to engaging in that. I'm Nora Young. Today on Spark, we're talking about how digital technologies have altered our understanding of belonging and how we seek it. Right now, my guest is Christiana Butna, a researcher in social psychology at the University of Basel, who explores how social media ostracism can help us explain and even predict the ways people behave and engage with others online. You note in a recent paper that people who self-exclude, meaning those who, who voluntarily choose not to engage in an activity, behave differently online than those who were not invited by others. Can you tell me a bit about that? There was a paper where we looked at what is the reason for exclusion. So social media gives us the opportunity to observe situations that we were not a part of later. And we instructed people to imagine that either they self-excluded, so they said, ah, oh, I, I can't on Friday, I have work to do whatever, self-exclusion, versus they did not know that this party would happen, they were not invited, and then later saw the posts about that. And we saw that the reactions were stronger for people who were not invited in the first place, but those who self-excluded still felt hurt and excluded to a lesser extent, but they were not similar, psychologically speaking, to those who were included. So we had a group who imagined, like, you also went to the event, it was great, you had fun, that's it. So self-exclusion is really in the middle. And this is something that, in terms of research, we know next to nothing about. Self-exclusion is so important in social media contexts. Very few ideas what it does to people. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. A concept you've been exploring in your research is the desire to belong publicly, DTBP. So could you explain what that is? The desire to belong publicly is a concept that we came up with because we observe differences in how important people feel it is to represent belonging online. So some people are very happy to like never post. Those are not the people that we're interested in. Some people who post regularly still have a preference for like posting their car, their awesome travels. And other people are very particular about posting about belonging, their awesome friend group, the great party they throw, how close they are with their best friend. And we came up with a trait, like a stable preference to post that online that we named Desire to Belong Publicly. 
And we find that this trait, people who are higher in that trait, also use social media more frequently, post more about belonging, and also have a higher inclination towards social media addiction. Okay. And what what's going on there with people? Like, why would someone feel the need to not only belong, but post that they belong? We think that self-esteem and like self-presentation might play a role here. So people construe their identities differently. For some people, it's very important like to have like status objects, like brand new car, nice flat, whatever. And some people really want to demonstrate social capital. And these are also the people who have a higher need to belong in general, but not exclusively. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to me a bit more about the risks involved in these uses of digital platforms? Like, could they lead to more concerning behavior online and offline over time? So in terms of exclusion, we think that it does contribute to people's overall feelings of being excluded. And these overall feelings have been linked to depression, suicidality and violence. So that is concerning from that perspective. Overall, I talked to someone earlier who said, but social media is just like the real life. It's just online. And I, I really think that social media brings out the best and the worst in us, just as real life. So it does amplify experiences of not belonging and being cut off and um, is so fast in doing that. At the same time, social media also offers people who are affected by exclusion, loneliness and so on, the opportunity to connect with others in a very fast and very like low level way. It also opens up opportunities for people who have a hard time finding communities offline to connect with others who are like-minded in both the negative ways, think extremism, but also very positive ways, think underrepresented uh, sexual minorities, for instance, trans people, and so on. And that is where social media can do a lot of good, but also comes with a lot of bad. Yeah, that's so interesting. So social media can actually be a way for people who feel ostracized in in physical life to to get that kind of connection in a, a sort of a lightweight, easier way. That's what we hope to yeah. um, investigate in the future, at least. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we often think about being on the side of the excluded, but in your research, what have you learned about why we exclude others? So exclusion from a target perspective, we don't say victim, but target because it's less offensive, it's always hurtful and it's always bad. From the perspective of those who exclude, social exclusion is not taken lightly, usually. People don't just exclude out of maliciousness or because they don't like someone, at least not as a default option. But social exclusion is very important to regulate groups, to also punish group members who do not conform to rules, think prison, what do we do with people who break societal rules? We isolate them. And one part of that is protecting society from that individual. But another part is also it's so hurtful. That's the worst you can do to people to yeah, put them away. So it's a way for groups to regulate norm deviation and also to regulate when people cannot contribute to group groups anymore. Think school mm -hmm. project that one person who never really you know put the effort in, maybe the next time you don't want to work with them, that might tell that person yeah. something like you really need to step it up. Otherwise, no one wants to work with you. That's not good for you. So ostracism, from the perspective of those who ostracize, also has functions. Let's put it like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Through your research, are there any ideas that you've come away with for how social media platforms could kind of lessen the chances of users? ostracizing others knowing, unknowingly or otherwise? Absolutely. The first 
very easy step would be to ask. Like before you post a picture, algorithms are so powerful right now. Like there's three people in this picture. One of them is likely you. The other two people, do you want to tag them? Did you ask them for permission to post their face? That would for sure bring down like unintentional forgetting to tag people incidents of ostracism. Mm -hmm. And just finally, is there anything that we as users can do to prevent ourselves from succumbing to those feelings of neglect or exclusion online? There's not a lot that we know about combating these feelings. It's in a way very different from like loneliness. There's a lot of interventions against loneliness and loneliness can be a consequence of ostracism, but it's not the same thing. I would advise for people to seek meaningful social connections elsewhere. If there's a context, be that social media or a certain circle of friends that you feel like you always feel worse after consuming social media or being with that friend group, find social connection elsewhere. There's a very nice concept in, in ostracism research that I like a lot. It's the power of one. If you're consistently excluded, but there's one person who really steps up for you and includes you and makes you feel valuable, that is so much more powerful than five people excluding you. So find these people and hang out with them. Good advice. Thank you so much, Christiana. Thank you. Christiana Butna is a PhD candidate in the Department of Social Psychology at the University of Basel in Switzerland. As our screen time steadily increases, so does the time we spend searching for spaces where we can be ourselves in the digital world, but also for tools that can help us better understand who we are and why we are the way we are. Just answer a few simple questions. How chill are you? Mm. Sometimes. <laughs> Many people have been drawn to personality quizzes and to astrology, activities that have been growing in popularity. Even the Spark crew takes part. You lose power in a storm, you... I like to keep people like calm. Freak out. Is freak out an option here? <laughs> what kind of home would you want to live in? I'm an apartment. That's my... Uh, cottage. I'm a townhome. Apartment. Do you guys know what your um, Myers-Briggs is? I-N-F-J. I know I'm a... I know, I know I'm an I. Can you guys guess which one I am? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Nora and I have worked together for 12... Years. Yeah, something like that. And so we're going to see what a Scorpio and Leo work vibe. Work compatibility. <laughs> but sure, vibe is cool too. Do Leo and Scorpio work well together? What makes this pair most compatible in the long term is their commitment to supporting one another's passions and dreams. They're a true power couple. Aww. I think that we have, we're good at like, you know, I do the things that I am hopefully good at and you do the things that you're good at. And I think we kind of you know, render under Caesar. And I think that makes us a good work team. Well, the stars agree. <laughs> <laughs> Thank heavens. <laughs> Productive time at the Spark office. Jeffrey Cohen, the author of the book Belonging, who we heard from earlier, says that these kinds of quizzes do, to an extent, serve a purpose in our search for a self-conception. I mean, astrology and like the Myers-Briggs test, they're fun. And it's always... A little enlightening to kind of look at yourself through the lens of some personality type. It can kind of bring a little bit of psychological coherence. I think, oh, like I remember when my dad gave me the Myers-Briggs test, you know, as a kid and I discovered I was the INFP and I read the description. I was like, oh, yeah, this is kind of, kind of mm -hmm. explains, makes sense of me in, in some ways. However, Myers-Briggs is not predictive 
of work performance or individual behavior in any sort of consistent or reliable way. It really isn't. And nor is astrology. It really is not predictive of how people behave. It's not a useful way in which to read people and their futures. So whenever we do this, I always feel like what we're doing is we're trying to render the novelty and individuality of someone into some pre-existing category. Oh, I got this person pegged as an INFP or as an Aries or as a Gemini. And what, I think there's cost to that because it, it prevents us from being able to see the full humanity of the person. And one other thing I think that they do is they cause us to to write people off way before we should. I think one of the most surprising things I've experienced in my own life is how surprising people are. You think you have someone pegged. This person is a greedy, selfish person. And then all of a sudden, if you hang with them a little longer and watch them in multiple situations, they might do something yeah. really pro-social. That is a lesson that I've learned just by hanging in there with people and, and not imputing disposition and personality to explain them when oftentimes it's the circumstances that they're dealing with that we're blind to. So yeah, humans are creatures who make meaning. And whether or not you believe in pseudoscience or care to know your birth chart, astrology is one of the oldest meaning systems. There's evidence of the practice dating back to the third millennium BCE, and it doesn't appear to be going anywhere anytime soon. In fact, astrology is currently having a moment in the cultural zeitgeist. In 2021, astrology services were estimated to be a $12 billion industry annually. But why do so many of us still trust the planets and the stars to tell us who we are and where we belong? And why now? To help us find out who better than an astrologist who's also a psychologist, meet Jennifer Freed. Astrology is the oldest personality system on record, and I call it a picture of your cosmic DNA. The basic lesson plan your soul decided to participate in in this lifetime. Psychology is the study of the condition of the soul and provides resources and tools to actualize those lessons. So together we have the cosmic lesson plan and psychology offers us the tools in order to face our adversities, but also to thrive with our gifts. Tools and a cosmic lesson plan. Check. Basically, I've always been fascinated by humans and humanity, and I was offered both trainings at a young age. At 19, I started studying both, and they really came together by the time I was 30. So I've always been a practicing therapist and an astrologer. And then some people wanted the benefit of both those expertises. And now I exclusively coach as a psychological astrologer. So over the course of your career, how would you say that public interest in astrology has changed? Well, it's like the gold rush. I mean, I started out and there was hardly anybody interested and they all thought I was a whack job. I didn't mind that. <laughs> now it's the most popular billion dollar industry and everyone's <laughs> calling themselves an astrologer. So the escalation of interest in astrology is unprecedented. Why do you think that is? I believe that when people are the most unmoored and uncertain and their conventional institutions haven't provided them a sense of belonging and inclusivity, that people seek meaning. That's what we do. We're meaning makers. And astrology as a symbol system offers a welcome sign to everyone. It's democratic. Everyone can participate. It's free on the internet. So it's like this huge rave, if you will, of human consciousness. 
Why do you think that interest in astrology increased during the pandemic? Because it really, at least anecdotally, it really did seem to increase in the pandemic. Well, we, most of us, were stuck at home. And we're also in a time of extraordinary fear and uncertainty. So we want to reach for that nearest available meaning maker. And it was everywhere to be found and seen. And it also connects people to one another in a very lonely time. Mm -hmm. Do you think in, in your own practice, like, do people have, do you have a sense of what it is that they're looking for when they come to you? In my work, different than many people, I think it's spiritual, emotional, mental, physical, emotional alignment. Each of us want to feel in harmony with ourselves. I believe that. We're happiest when we're fully expressed and when we feel seen, safe, and celebrated. When I work with people almost every time, the first session, they're weeping with a sense of recognizing themselves. But is there ever a limitation of that, of a limitation of the labels? Yeah, I'm not a big labeler. So yes, labels are very limiting. I'm, I'm not at all in favor of labels. I'm interested in divine possibilities. Yeah. So I don't see people as nouns. I don't see astrology as a fixed state. These are all fluid possibilities. So our conversations are not about gotcha ever. But in the broader sort of cultural world, there has been this upsurge in interest of, of astrology, yes, but also personality quizzes, you know, in social media, even, you know, Myers-Briggs, Chinese Zodiac. Why do you think so much of us love latching on to kind of something that's going to say I'm an ISPJ or whatever it is, that, that label? Well, I would put it that the ego loves definition, a sense of sovereignty. I am this, I am not this, but that becomes very problematic, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Because if we all want a sense of belonging, we have to realize we belong to each other and to this earth and the animals, not just to our identities. You talked about that desire to to turn to things like this in, in times of loneliness or uncertainty, which certainly we've been going through. Is it healthy to turn to our, our cosmic DNA, as you call it, uh, or other personality symptoms, particularly in times of loneliness? I think like any great tool, it could be helpful or it could be problematic. The helpful is it's a portal to more understanding of self and others. That's beautiful. It's problematic if it becomes an obsessive othering where you're this, I'm this, and it becomes an entire preoccupation with identities and rigidities. Then it's not helpful. Yeah. Over the course of your career, have you come across any kind of pushback for the work that you do? <laughs> Is that a yes? <laughs> Nora, are you kidding? I am a woman who's with another woman. I'm an astrologer and I'm Jewish. You think I haven't had pushback? <laughs> okay, let me just say this. Of course, of course, pushback. I welcome the cynics. I welcome the detractors. I didn't come to this as some naive enthusiast. I'm very skeptical myself, cynical myself. So for me, I'm a prove it kind of person. If it's practical and it's helpful, keep it. If it's not, I'm not interested. So I really understand that skeptical, cynical mindedness and I appreciate it. Mm -hmm. and, and just finally, how would you say your understanding of yourself and what it means to, to feel like you belong has changed over the course of your 40-year career doing the work you do? Well, I feel an immense sense of belonging every day. 
because I am very earnestly involved with the divine of my knowing and nature and animals and love. So I would say as I have continued a very disciplined spiritual practice for all these years, and I'm 65, that my sense of belonging has become way vaster, much more reliable, and I feel very grateful every day to be part of this magical mystery that's constantly unfolding. And the only caveat I would say is anyone that has certainty back away. Jen, thanks so much for your insights on this. Okay, what a pleasure to talk to you, Nora. Jennifer Freed is a psychological astrologer and author of A Map to Your Soul and Use Your Planets Wisely. In this series, Being Human Now, we've been exploring how some core human values are changing in this particular technological moment. It turns out the sense of belonging is so foundational for us humans, we'll seek it out however we can. And yet so much about our current use of technology, staring into our phones, looking for validation on social media, makes feeling included more difficult. But it's not all bad news. Jeffrey Cohen points out that belonging can be situational. And that means we can find ways to make our interactions with others more welcoming, creating a sense of belonging for others and ourselves. I had an experience recently where I was at a social event and one person was the sort of connecting point and knew a bunch of different uh, people. And some of the people at the event were people that I, I found challenging from a personal point of view. But because we were all having dinner with this friend, it's like, well, there you are. You're not going to like just go offline. You can't just turn off your phone or whatever. And it was a really interesting experience to actually work through that feeling of discomfort and get to that. But really, it's so easy now to just say, yeah, nah, not for me, especially if you live in a big city like I do. Yeah, that's right. And it undermines our ability to connect and, and learn from others and check our biases because we we stop talking to people before we have the opportunity to have our biases disconfirmed. I think it's so true. In your book, you talk a lot about so-called wise interventions and situation crafting to stave off feeling out of place and foster belonging for ourselves and for others. Could you explain what those are and just maybe walk me through an example or two in our everyday lives? Sure. I think your story that you just told is a really good example of that, where uh, you're at a party and something about the interpersonal interactions just goes better by nature of the situation you're in. There's something kind of communal in the air. It transcends the individuals in it. And that is one of the big lessons of social psychology that so much of our behavior, not all, but a lot of it is determined by our circumstances, the sort of right here, right now, in a cafe, at work, in a classroom. Aspects of the situation often subtle are shaping us much more than we think. One of my Favorite examples of this is a study by Lee Ross where he was looking at just how much do people cooperate versus be selfish and greedy in one of these strategic economic games. I'll just really simplify the the study. But basically, in this game, you can either cooperate and be a nice person or you can defect and try to steal the pot of money for yourself. And one of the things they asked, well, who's likely to defect and cooperate? And one of the things that did not predict whether they cooperated or defected was their personality or reputation among their peers as greedy or selfish. Those people who had reputations as greedy or selfish, they they really didn't differ in how much they cooperated or defected in this game. But what did matter was something in the situation. The name of the game, when the experimenter offhandedly referred to the game as the Wall Street game, 70% of the players defected, 
tried to take the money for themselves. <laughs> but when the experimenter just offhandedly referred to the game as the community game, 70% cooperated. Huh. The name of the game. What are we playing here? I love that study because I do feel like so much of social life is a kind of game with these sort of unwritten rules. Of course, we're always trying to be, most of us, to be authentic and genuine. But our behavior is often constrained by the norms and scripts of the situation, the so-called kind of game of the circumstance. And this study kind of empowers us to think about ways in which we can frame our interactions with one another's as community games rather than Wall Street selfish games. And, and I've just noticed over the years that I have certain friends that are really good at doing this. They, they just create a hospitable atmosphere. They make you feel seen and included. And that's what I would refer to as situation crafting. It is altering your behavior in ways that helps people to feel that they belong and fully express themselves and their potential. Hmm. In many circumstances, there's this kind of unseen lever that we can pull, which is changing the circumstances we are in, often through subtle means, such as paying another person a compliment. Or here's a good example, expressing gratitude or appreciation to someone else. Sarah Algiers at Cornell has done some amazing research showing that having partners just take some time out of the day to say, here's what I appreciate about you, just for a few minutes increases relationship satisfaction and actually spend roughly an hour more time together every day relative to the control group because of that, that little act. And then we've done a few studies in school settings where we show that a teacher can situation craft. For instance, we had teachers give feedback to students of color in seventh grade middle school who had written an essay. And all we did was that for one random group of the kids, we had the teachers attach a handwritten note and that note simply said, I'm giving you this feedback because I have high standards and I believe in your potential to reach them. And now from the perspective of the kid, it's like a small change in the situation, which makes me feel seen and included. And what we found was that the percentage of kids who revised their essay jumped from 17% in a control condition to 71% among those who got that little note. And not only that, years later, these kids who received that note were more likely to make it to college. I'm not saying that this kind of seeming magic happens all the time, but once in a while, the little right act of support in the right place and the right time can make a world of difference as it did in this study. Mm -hmm. Jeff, thanks so much for your insights on this. My pleasure. Thank you, Nora. Jeffrey Cohn is a professor of psychology and the James G. March Professor of Organizational Studies in Education and Business at Stanford University. He's also the author of Belonging, the Science of Creating Connection and Bridging Divides. You've been listening to Spark. The show is made by Michelle Parisi, Samarie Johannes, Megan Carty, and me, Nora Young. And by Jeffrey Cohen, Christiana Butna, and Jennifer Freed. Subscribe to Spark on the free CBC Listen app or your favorite podcast app. I'm Nora Young. Talk to you soon. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.